going to be continuing on as our series through the Gospel of Matthew. If you don't have a Bible, there should be one under one of the seats near you. If you're not familiar with the Bible at all, there's a table of contents in the beginning, and Matthew is the first book of what we call the New Testament. And we're going to be looking at chapter 5 this morning, verses 31 through 37. And uh, if you haven't been with us for a while, basically this is Jesus' kingdom directive for those of us who have been received into his kingdom, who have acknowledged Jesus as king, who have, the Bible says, repented, turned from the way in which we are going, recognizing that we need a savior and recognizing that Jesus is the Messiah king. And now we have come under his authority. And then what does that life look like for us who are believers now? How are we to live this life out? What has God designed us to be as true humans in his original design? And so Jesus has been going through all these different areas of how our lives should look different than the lives of those in the world and probably our life before we came to Christ. And he's dealt with anger and are dealing with anger and he's dealt with strong desire or lust and sexual temptation. And uh, this morning he's going to deal with two areas that probably all of us have experienced in our lives in one way or another, maybe not directly, but tangentially through other people. And I've got a few uh, pictures, Sue, if you want to put these up. And I just want you to think about a theme of some of these uh, pictures. All right. All right, next picture. Uh, okay, next. All right, next. All right, next. All right, so what do all of those pictures have in common? What is a, a theme of those pictures? Anybody guess? Uh, people who use words to portray a particular understanding of reality that may not be exactly accurate. And so the last picture of Aaron Rodgers, I just had to put that up there because he was asked if he had been vaccinated, and he said, I have been immunized. Now, clearly he knew what the intent of that question was, and clearly he knew when he said that answer that that was giving the impression that he actually had been vaccinated, but that was not the case. And then the last slide here. <laughs> so we're going to be looking at a passage that deals with our truthfulness. And we're also going to be looking at a passage that deals with divorce. And the passage about divorce, I'm just going to hit briefly this morning, because later on as we're going through the Gospel of Matthew, we're going to pick this up more in detail, detail in chapter 19. That's much more in depth. I'll just hit it briefly. But these two issues that Jesus is dealing with here, he's once again pointing us to this place of our being people of the kingdom and what we have been designed to be. And basically his first intention here for those who are married is that we are in lifelong faithfulness to that covenant partner of marriage that he's given us. That's his design for those of us who are called to marriage. And we talked about that this morning in Sunday school class, that oftentimes in the church we act like you cannot be fulfilled unless you are married. And if you're single, then, oh, when are you going to get married to be fulfilled? And that's basically just imbibing 
the Kool-Aid of the culture that says what gives life in this world right now is a relationship, and that is the main thing. Jesus was a single guy his whole life, right? Bucking the cultural trend. It was just assumed if you're a guy in that culture, you would be married early on in life, and you would live as a married man for the rest of your life, and that's Jesus bucking that trend, and Jesus says, you know, when the disciples are wrestling with this question of who can get divorced, and Jesus said, well, it's only for marital infidelity, and his disciples say, well, then it's better not to marry, and Jesus says, yeah, well, not everybody can accept that. So Jesus is, in essence, they're saying, yeah, that is true. In 1 Corinthians 7, it says it's better if you can remain signal because for the work of the kingdom, you've got a lot more time and resources to invest there. So I want to just support those of you who are single right now and say you are valuable to the kingdom. You are not second-class citizens. You can live a completely fulfilled life without being married. But those who are called to marriage, Jesus' design is this: this marriage will continue lifelong. That's the pattern for those citizens of his kingdom. And then the second issue that he deals with this in, in this section is that we, as citizens of his kingdom, our speech should just be characterized by simple truthfulness. I remember being on the playground when I was in elementary school, right, and you'd say something, and you'd put your hands behind your back, and then they wouldn't do it. So, ah, had my fingers crossed. You know, that, that violated, you know, any contract that you had because you had your fingers crossed. Then you learned, okay, if you're going to be talking with people, put your hands out. They've got to be in front of you. So you work on those angles of how do I make sure this person is telling the truth, so those are the two issues we're going to explore this morning. So if you have your Bibles, again, we're going to be looking at Matthew 5, and I'll start reading in verse 31. It was also said, whoever divorces his wife, let him give her a certificate of divorce. But I say to you that everyone who divorces his wife, except on the ground of sexual immorality, makes her commit adultery, and whoever marries a divorced woman commits adultery. Again, you've heard it said, to those of old, you shall not swear falsely, but shall perform to the Lord what you have sworn. But I say to you, do not take an oath at all, either by heaven, for it is the throne of God, or by the earth, for it is his footstool, or by Jerusalem, for it is the city of the great king. And do not take an oath by your head, for you cannot make one hair white or black. I'm pretty good at turning them white. Not so great at turning them black. Let what you say be simply yes or no. Anything more than this comes from evil. This is a reading of God's word. So Jesus is dealing with two issues again. And as I said in the beginning, in the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus is just getting into our business in a big way in terms of how we live life in the dailiness of life as we go through our weeks. And the first point he makes is that if you are a child of his, if you are a citizen of his kingdom, and we've talked about the fact that we must be born again, we must be born into this kingdom, and, and these things that he lays out in the Sermon on the Mount are not the things that we need to do to make ourselves acceptable to God. That acceptance comes completely by Jesus Christ and his work on the cross. But once we have been accepted, these are Christ's guidelines. This is how I want you to live as a citizen of my kingdom. And in regards to marriage, he says, I want you to be faithful to your covenant partner till death does you part. 
And he says, you've heard it said, whoever divorces his wife, let him give her a certificate of divorce. That's from Deuteronomy chapter 24. And you can turn there, you can just listen as I read that. And it's an interesting passage. When a man takes a wife and marries her, if then she finds no favor in his eyes because he has found some indecency in her, and he writes her a certificate of divorce and puts it in her hands and sends her out of his house, and she departs out of his house, and if she goes and becomes another man's wife, the latter man hates her and writes her a certificate of divorce and puts in her hand, puts it in her hand and sends her out of his house. Or if the latter man dies who took her to be his wife, then her former husband who sent her away may not take her again to be his wife after she has been defiled, for this is an abomination before the Lord, and you shall not bring sin upon the land that the Lord your God is giving you for an inheritance. So here's a law that was designed basically to protect the wife from a quick divorce. It says, if a husband is married to a woman and he finds some indecency in her. And so that is not really described. So by Jesus' time, there's a huge amount of debate in terms of what that some indecency was. Well, we're going to talk about that in a second. But basically, if he finds some indecency, he can give her a certificate of divorce. In the Jewish culture, if that woman gave was given a certificate of divorce, it was an automatic right to remarry, and in that culture, it was a very male-dominated culture. Her main way of just surviving was to be married, and so she would marry somebody else, and then that person sends her out. The first husband couldn't take her back, and the idea was, I'm not on a whim going to divorce my wife, and then if I decide later on I want to have her back, then I will bring her back. And he says, no, that's not going to happen. So, Moses is saying, give her a certificate of divorce, and there's no remarriage with a previous spouse allowed here. But by the time of Jesus, that little comment finds some indecency in her was heavily debated. What does that mean? And there were two basic schools of thought. One was the more conservative school of thought by a rabbi named Shammai. And he said basically that some indecency refers to a sexual impropriety that takes place when the couple is married, right? There's something that happens there that breaks the bond, and in that case, divorce is allowed. But that's the only case that it's allowed in. There was another rabbi, a guy named Hillel, that said some indecency can refer basically to anything, any cause whatsoever. And there's writings that if the wife burns the dinner... Okay, you can divorce her. If the husband finds someone more pleasing to him, okay, that's fine. You can divorce your first wife. And so the idea here is there are these two competing schools of thought in terms of when it's appropriate to divorce. And in this culture, only males could divorce. If you're a wife, you could not divorce your husband. Only a husband could divorce his wife. So which of those two views do you think became most popular by the time of Jesus? Mr. Hillel, right? Any cause whatsoever, I'm done, I'm just out of here, I'm punching out, I want to live my life. And that left the woman in a very precarious situation in that culture. Because at that time, a woman couldn't go out and just get a job and become self-supporting on her own, very different from our culture. And so that woman was generally forced into another marriage or forced into prostitution. And if you read that passage, it says the husband basically forces her to commit adultery. It's the husband that is kind of the guilty party in this as he's forcing his wife, if she's been divorced for an unbiblical reason, to commit 
adultery. So it's to those in this easy divorce culture, much like ours, right? No fault divorce, you can just go file it, and you can probably get something online, you know, take it down, and, and you're done. You, you can be over with that. And as we look at our culture and you see that, you know, in Malachi, the Lord says, I hate divorce. He doesn't say, I hate divorcees. He says, I hate divorce. Why? Because any of you who have been impacted by divorce know the pain and the hurt that comes along with that. There's not an, quote, easy divorce, especially when there are children involved. But Jesus recognizes that certain times in certain relationships, there are reasons where staying together is not the best situation. So he allows that, but he sides basically with Shammai. Here saying it's for porneia, for some sexual infidelity that goes on. So Jesus is signing on the more conservative side, saying this is what I want you to be as my people. I want you to keep your marriage vows, to stay true to your partner throughout your life. And again, we're going to talk more about this as we get to Matthew 19, but right now Jesus is signing on that conservative side, saying as my people, I want you to take your vows seriously. This is a vow you have made. Stay married to your partner. And as I go into this, even if there has been sexual infidelity, that does not mandate a divorce, but a divorce is allowed in that case. There's a little book um, that I love. It's called The Good News About Marriage, and it's by a woman named Shanti Feldhan. And uh, she talks in there about uh, the vast majority of people in marriages, 80% say their marriages are happy. But for those 20% that say they are very unhappy in their marriages, five years later, after that, has been, that survey has been taken, 80% of that 20% say they're now happy. So even if you're in a struggling time in your marriage right now, I want to say the stats say push through it, work through it, talk to somebody, get counseling, work through that because God knows the pain that divorce causes. He recognizes sometimes that's a reality. And if you have been divorced, there is forgiveness for that. This is not the unpardonable sin. It's not the scarlet letter sin. But the reality is divorce is painful, and God says, that's not what I want for my people. So do your best to stay committed to the partner that you have from your youth. There's a book um, that I recommend. I think it's on your little uh, note sheet. It's called uh, Divorce and Remarriage in the Bible. It's by a guy named David Instone Brewer. If you want to dig deeper into this topic, pick that up, and then we're going to talk about this more when we get to chapter 19. So that's the first aspect of what it means in this section to be part of God's kingdom, a citizen of his kingdom, to be faithful to our marriage vows. And then he goes to another area, oaths. Again, you have heard it said to those of old, you shall not swear falsely, but shall perform to the Lord what you have sworn. But I say to you, do not take an oath at all, either by heaven, for it is the throne of God, or by earth, for it is footstool, or by literally towards Jerusalem, for it is the city of the great king. So Jesus is saying here, don't swear falsely. When we hear swear, we think of four-letter words, right? Things you say when you hit your finger with a hammer, those kind of things. That's not what Jesus is talking about here. Paul addresses that in Ephesians 4. He says, don't let any unwholesome talk come out of your mouth. So don't hear me saying, hey, you can go out there and cuss like a, like a sailor. Sorry, sailors out there. The reality is, I think some people in us, like, I'm not a legalistic Christian, so I'm going to let some fly every once in a while just to prove that, but God wants our language to be wholesome, so this is not an endorsement of that, but that's not what it's talking about here. It's about taking oaths, 
It's about invoking the name of God or some other object to bolster the credibility of your statement, right? To make it sound more true with more veracity. This, you can really believe this. You know, when I was a kid, I swear to God, that's, that's what we would say, right? The, you got to really believe me on this. And the more the kids swore, you miss like, ah, I probably, he's probably lying here. And, and the Essenes, there was a group that at this time said, you know, the more oaths somebody takes, the less you should believe them, and that's of the evil one, basically. So Jesus is kind of partnering with them in this idea here. But as we read this, it's like, okay, most of us probably this past week have not taken an oath. You know, when do we take oaths in our country still, right? When we're going to, I swear to tell the whole truth, nothing but the truth, so help me God, Right? That's really the only time when we'll talk about taking oaths. So, are we good? Can we just take a pass on this one? It's like, oh, we got this thing nailed down. I don't think that's basically what Jesus is saying here. I think he's saying that our words need to be used to provide truth, simple truth, and not used to manipulate and to deceive other people. By the time of Jesus, there was a whole range of ways that you could swear that were not quite, you know, that 100% veracity thing. People would generally not swear by the Lord because they still believed in the Lord and believed, wow, there's going to be some consequences if I swear by Yahweh in this situation, so I'm not going to do that. But they would swear by other things. And you had to be really careful in terms of how and what you listen to. And you got to remember, this is an oral culture. There's not a lot of long written contracts because paper and writing was really expensive. You had to usually hire a scribe, and it, wasn't, it was very, very costly to do that. So somebody's word was really, really significant. Anybody bought a car recently at a car dealership? How many pieces of paper do you have to sign, right? They used to actually give you the paper after you were done. Now they just give you a thumb drive because there's so much paperwork that they can't even fit it, you know. It'd kill so many trees. It's like, okay, let's just put it on a thumb drive. We can make this thousands of pages, right? And the reality is, as Jesus approaches us, he wants us to be truthful and not to use our words to deceive or to manipulate other people. For example, it's really interesting. It talks about in here, take an oath, don't swear by heaven, for it is the throne of God, or by earth, for it is his footstool, or by Jerusalem. It's interesting. Um, in the original, it changes the preposition. Literally, don't take an oath toward Jerusalem. And that's significant because the way they had figured it out, if you swear by Jerusalem, it's not that binding. It's the, okay, but if you swear directed towards Jerusalem, that you have to keep that, right? And you see this in, in Matthew 23 as well. It's like, okay, I swear by the temple. Should I believe this guy when he says that? I swear by the gold in the temple. Oh. And so if he swears by the temple and doesn't follow through, it's like, hey, I was only swearing by the temple. I was not swearing by the gold in the temple. Or I swear by the altar. Okay, do I take that? I swear by the gift on the altar. Ooh, the gift on the altar is what makes sense, not swearing by the altar itself. And so they had all sorts of gradations of, okay, what is actually really binding 
And what, if you say it, it's like, okay, yeah, the fingers were crossed. It's, hey, I was just swearing by the temple. You should have known that, you know. And it's the same idea, you know, reading through the fine print of, you know, all the contracts, right? How many of you, and I confess, I lie here, when you're getting new software on your computer and, it down, and it, the agreement, you know, have you read, do you agree to this agreement? How many of you actually read every word of that? And say, it's like, no, nah, just, I'm just going to click it, right? I just do that, but the reality is, what is all that stuff? It's all legalese so that the person that is making this promise, in one sense, can sometimes get out of that promise. Not to pick on lawyers, but why are there so many lawyers and why are contracts so long? Because as people, we're not trustworthy, right? And so you have two groups of lawyers, one on each side, one gets creative, and then the other realizes, oh man, we've got to put this clause in there to counteract that clause, and then they get more creative, and then they need another clause, and they go back and forth, and then you're at thumb drive soon, right? And the reality is, if people would just be honest and let their yes be yes, and their no, no, we would eliminate all of that, but that's not how we are as people, right? Jesus says, I want you to be people who are honest, and let your yes be yes and your no, no. Now there are some Christians, and I appreciate their zeal, I think it's a little bit misdirected in this area, Anabaptists will not swear any oaths at all. And again, to me as I look at this, what is Jesus driving at? He's driving at claims that I make in order to bolster the credibility of my words that may not be all that credible. He's not talking about other people asking you to bolster what they think your veracity is. And so that's how I differ. If somebody else asks me to swear, yes, I will swear. If I'm going into this situation voluntarily and say, hey, I swear, you got to believe me. You know, it's like, okay. That, I think, is what Jesus is saying you shouldn't do. So I don't think it's wrong when you go to court to swear in that way. It's just the way the court is saying, okay, you're under this oath now. If you lie, you perjure yourself. Whether you believe in God or not, there's consequences to perjury. So I don't think Jesus is saying, don't ever do that. But what he's saying is, don't use your words in a deceitful way. Uh, Dallas Willard, in a great book called uh, Divine Conspiracy, says this. But Jesus goes right to the heart of why people swear oaths. He knew they do it to impress others with their sincerity and reliability and thus gain acceptance of what they're saying and what they want. It is a method of getting their way. They are declaring some promise or purpose or some point of information or knowledge dear to them. They want their hearers to accept what they say and to do what they want. So they say, by God or God knows to lend weight to their words and presence. It is simply a device of manipulation designed to override the judgment and will of the ones they are focusing on, to push them aside rather than respecting them and leaving their decision and action strictly up to them. So if you read this and said, whew, I finally got this one. This Sermon on the Mount's been rough, but now, oh, I rarely do that. It's like, okay, what's Jesus getting at? The heart of the matter is that we're people of honesty. Do I use my words to manipulate? or to shade the truth, or to embellish my credibility or my importance. I remember first when I was in the pastorate, and you'd go to pastor's conference, right? Everybody knows the questions they get, it's get asked at the various areas of vocation you're in, but it's like, how big is your church? 
I was like, okay, on Easter, the best day, we had 220 people. There were four pregnant women. They count as two. You know, there were three service dogs in the service. And it's like, oh, we're running like 2.30, one time out of 52 weeks, you know. But there's that, why, why are you tempted to do that? Why do you go in there with this attitude? Have you ever said to somebody, hey, I'll be praying for you. Then you see him walking up in the aisle in the church and you're like, oh God, I'm praying for Joe. And like, oh, Joe, been praying for you. <laughs> right? 30 seconds before it happens. Are our words, do they mean anything? Is it truthful what we say? Or do we use them to embellish the truth or to put ourselves in the best light? Going out skiing, right? Mm. You get off the chairlift in the wrong place and you get on a double black diamond and you just kind of go down that whole slope on your rear end, <laughs> falling many times, and then you're in the lounge afterwards like, yeah, I was skiing the double blacks today. <laughs> it's like, no, <laughs> you went down the door. It's like, okay, what are we doing in those cases? We're trying to make ourselves look better, right? To portray ourselves in a better light. And so what's Jesus' solution? He says, don't swear at all. Let your yes be yes and your no, no. Let your words be trustworthy. Can people count on you when they ask you a question to answer honestly? And this hits the church, how are you doing? And I know that can just be kind of a social, this is kind of saying hi. But someone who you know, okay, they're looking for a little bit more than that. Are we honest with how's how we're doing? How are you doing spiritually? Uh, pretty good. In my Bible, once in the last three months. You know, are we being honest with other people? And when we're not, there's damage that results there. If we're not honest with other people in terms of the battle and the struggles that we face in the church, then people leave here feeling, man, I'm the only person that doesn't have it all together. Everybody I talk to, man, their spiritual life is like at this plane, couldn't be better, my best life now, never had a problem, never had an argument, never had a doubt, never had a struggle. And they leave discouraged. There are some in the church that have the gift of giving. If we don't know what the needs are, how can we exercise that gift? Some with the gift of encouragement, if you never say you're discouraged or wrestling, what, what's the point of that gift in the church? Doing fine. Really? Yeah. Couldn't be better. So we've got to be very careful with how we use our words. And I know this is really difficult. I know this is a challenge because James says the hardest part of our body to tame is this thing. And it scares me to death because at the beginning of James 3, when he gets into all that, he says, don't let many of you presume to be teachers. Why? Because we're using our tongues all the time. And we're using our tongues for spiritual purposes. And you've got to watch it because the people here were using religious words to manipulate. I swear by the temple. I swear by the gold in the temple. I... I'm really spiritual, and, and they're using those words to manipulate. And I think that can happen in our lives, too. Has anybody ever played the God card on you? 
they're going in a particular direction and you know it's probably not, but God said that I need to be going in this direction. How do you argue with that? It's using religious language to say, don't, don't, don't question this, don't mess with me because God told me this is the way that I need to go. And those in leadership are especially liable to this thing. And you see it on TV all the time, right? God told me that I need a new Gulf Stream. I have to have it. Because I just can't fly with those normal people because I'll probably get COVID and I need to be where I'm getting really fast. Right? And there's all sorts of stuff that is laced with this God language that is used to deceive and manipulate and to, for the person to get what they want in those situations. And Jesus says, that's not what I want my people to be about. I want my people to be people of honesty and integrity. Let your yes be yes and your no, no. Why do we fudge, shade the truth? Well, one reason, I think, is to get something we want. It may be money. It may be a relationship. It may be popularity. But we think if we would say what is really truthful, we're not going to get that thing. So we are going to help God a little bit here because this is what we need. And if I'm really honest about what I put on my resume, then I don't think I'm going to get that. So I'm going to shade and color and selectively leave in and leave out certain things there. We also do it to prop up fragile egos. The thing is, what, what I am right now is, is not enough. I need to be something more. So I need to embellish the fish story a little bit. I need to lower my golf score. Uh, I think it was John Ortberg said, you know, I thought fishermen were liars until I hung out with golfers. <laughs> this reality of, you know, just this, okay, why? we want to present ourselves in a better light. Why? Because I guess if I'm not that great at golf, I'm not that important as a person, right? Or if I'm not you know, advancing as the superstar pastor or the super person in my career and, you know, I'm going to be in Top Gun in two years because I'm just so awesome. And so I'm going to fudge a little bit, exaggerate here a little bit. You know, we do it to gain acceptance. You want that thumbs up, right? So I'm the super mom, super parent, super pastor, super pilot, super athlete, Super, super, and I think we all know that pull, right? To present ourselves in a way that isn't super accurate. I'm not on social media, but I hear that that may be a temptation if you're on there. Get the right filters, the right lighting, you know. You look like a movie star. Skinny up a little bit, a little Photoshop in here. Yeah, that's me, Mm mm-hmm. Just was down in Cancun as I photoshopped myself into that beach picture and, you know. So how do we become truth-speaking kingdom citizens? I think the first thing is that we need really to deeply root ourselves in the grace of the gospel. To know that we are loved and accepted by God, not because of what we do, what we look like, how much money we have in the bank, 
how much success we've achieved in our lives, but simply because God has, in his amazing love, showered that love on us and said, I've made you in my image and I love you and I delight in you and you are significant and valuable and important as you are right now. You don't have to be more than what you are right now to be loved by me. And I know we say that, but that usually sits right up here. It's really hard and it's probably a longer process from that which we know up here to get here in our hearts where we really feel like, you know what? I would like to be liked by this person, but if this person rejects me and thinks I'm an idiot because I'm a Christian or what I've done with my life, you know what? That's okay. It's okay because who really matters is God and what he thinks of me. And again, those are really easy words to say. But if you're in a situation in a room of people and they're going around and all of them are superstars and you've got to say, eh, not quite the superstar. Yeah, I took my church from 30 to 3,000 in two years. How about you? Well, beautiful weather outside, isn't it? <laughs> so I recognize that. But we've got to get rooted in that grace and love of God if we're going to live in our culture as Christ wants us to live. Second, we've got to trust the Father's ability to provide what's best for our lives. That we don't need to embellish. That we don't need to manipulate. That we don't need to kind of massage the truth in order to get to that next step, that next level, whatever that is. Whether that's, I've got to have this relationship, or I've got to have this job, or I've got to get into this school or i got to be accepted by these people? Do I really trust the Father? It's like, you know what is best for me. And if I am simply honest, then you're going to get me to where I need to go. I remember one of our former deacons, um, he was a doctor down at uh, the VA, and uh, he said, you know, I'm going to have to go in here and I'm going to have to take a stand for life. And he says, I know that's going to kill my career. You know, I will never make captain after this, but I just have to do it. And he went in there and he said his piece, and then, by God's grace, he became a captain. <laughs> so God is able to get us to where he wants us to be. And sometimes we share that, you know what, we don't become captain. But you know what, that's okay because God will provide for that person. And you've got to say, this is the best place that you want me to be, God. So I don't have to fudge a little bit, leave things out, exaggerate, manipulate, use my words to present a view of me that is a little bit different than actual reality. If I trust my father, he knows where he wants me to be, and he's going to get me there, and he's not going to get me there any quicker. In fact, there's probably going to be a detour if I fudge a little bit. And then... Another thing I think that's really helpful for us to become truth-speaking kingdom citizens is that we search out other gracious truth-tellers in the body of Christ. That you have people that you can be real and honest with, that you know are going to accept and love you, but also give you some challenge as well, right? They're not going to reject you because, oh, I can't believe that's your temptation. But saying, yeah, how can I help? How can I walk alongside you in this process 
You don't have to be more. I love you as you are, but man, I want you to be what God wants you to be and to walk in light of who you are as a citizen of his kingdom so that we reflect to the world what it means to be a child of God and his ambassador. And part of that is our being honest with our words and saying what is truthful. Selling a used car, it runs perfectly. Three cylinders aren't firing well, but hey, hopefully on the test drive it'll be okay. And when it gets off there, the contract will be signed and I'll be good to go. And then I'll have to get a lawyer and get involved to sue me, and that's probably not going to happen, so I'm good. No, yeah, the, this has the problem. Yeah, mm, you still want to buy it. Am I willing to be that honest? Again, like I said, as you get in the Sermon on Mount, he deals with our business, the nitty-gritty of life. And I think all of us, you know, we have this tendency to want to portray ourselves in a more pleasant light sometimes than what we really are. And again, I'm not saying you're going to air your dirty laundry with everybody, but are you willing to be honest with some people, to tell the truth? And again, to me, the biggest and the most important step is understanding who I am in Christ. It's like, how does the Sermon on the Mount begin? Blessed are the spiritually bankrupt, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Okay, I'm spiritually bankrupt. There's a lot of ways that God is still working on my life to grow me, but you know what? He loves me right now, and he's gonna take me along, and he's gonna work on these things in my life, and you know what? I can be honest about that, and if you don't like me and you reject me, that's okay. In a pastor's meeting over in New Orleans, we all were commenting when we were in seminary, our professors would say, don't share anything with your congregation of a personal nature. Don't have friends in your congregation is basically what they're saying. And I was like, <laughs> I heard that, I was like, oh, if that's the case, then I don't want to be a stupid pastor. If I can't have friends in my congregation because I'm so nervous that one day I'm going to get my pink slip and it's like, okay, what am I? I'm not trusting God that he's got my future and if the people boot me out of here, then he's still got me. If none of you show up next week, it's okay because I'm not going to be here. We're going to be on vacation up in Ellicott. <laughs> the reality is the following week, then that may upset me a little bit, but it's like, okay, God, you've still got me. And I want a place where we can be honest with one another and just say, this is the real me. These are my strengths, these are my weaknesses, and you know what, that's okay. And if I understand the body, God has brought different people with different strengths and different weaknesses in here so that together we collectively act more like Jesus Christ as we interact and love other people. So Jesus says, keep your vows, speak truthfully, whether that's a marriage vow or just talking to other people. Let your yes be yes and be a person whose word actually counts for something. Let's pray. Jesus, we struggle. We know who we are and so often we don't feel like other people will like us as we are. Help us to feel your love and acceptance for every one of us who has trusted you. Help us to know that we are delighted in by you, that our struggles and our failures do not push you away, but they push you towards us to help us grow. Help us to understand that more than just intellectually, but at a deep heart level.
Lord, surround us with people that are truth-tellers and gracious, that together, Lord, we may walk this path of honesty before you and before others, reflecting you as our Father, not the Father of lies. We want to be people who image you accurately to this world around us. And Lord, we know we can't do this on our own. In different ways, we all struggle with this. So Lord, help us. Fill us with your Spirit. Help us to be the kind of people that you're calling us to be. Work with us in the midst of this process, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen.